Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. I'm excited for our guest today. We have back on the show, Tendai Vicky. Tendai, thanks for doing this. Thank you, Jeff. Really appreciate being back. So uh, last time your previous book, Pirates in the Navy, had come out about like, you know, I'm going to do my version and then you can correct me. But I think about that book as like how to be an innovator inside a big company without getting ejected. Like, like if you're going to be different, if you're going to be trying stuff that doesn't work in the big company, how do you actually work with the big company so that when it's time to commercialize, everybody doesn't hate you? Or when it's time to spin out or something, you have like lots of support because you're not seen as the enemy. You're like a, you're like a privateer pirate, not a criminal pirate. How, how am I doing? Yeah, how would you say it better? Exactly. No, that's it. I mean, uh, a, a, a privateer is essentially a pirate with papers okay? rather than a pirate that doesn't have papers, which is what I just did, an ordinary pirate is. And so the whole point is if you're going to start exploring the future and doing work that's a little bit crazy, you do need permission to do that or at least some level of support so that if you ever succeed with any of that work that you're doing, you're able to bring it back into the organization and then it goes out into the world and, and, and actually scales. I think the value of being in a large organization is access to markets and customers and resources. Otherwise, just go, just go do a startup because then you don't have any other constraints, right? So the only reason you pay the price is because you want to be able to then leverage the size of the organization to scale your, your the, the innovations that you have. Now, if you're working on innovation, but you don't have access to those resources, then you're just a startup in chain. You're not really a startup. You're not really in a large company. So, so that's why like Pirates in the Navy, it's, it's just about how do you build the bridge between your work as an innovator and what the core business does so you can take advantage of the conditions that, that you're in. I, I think the analogy is so good because I really didn't know much about privateers. Like the only pirates I thought of was like Pirates of the Caribbean, where right. it's, you know, criminals pillaging and murdering and whatever, you know. Yeah. And it's like finding out the history of like, oh no, the, the British Navy or somebody would would essentially, they were like an extension of the Navy. Like, hey, listen, you know, our enemies are doing this over here. We want you to go raid them and, and get their resources. And it's like essentially a raiding force that's part of the military, not not outside of the system. And, uh, but, but obviously doing different actions, completely different mindset, different chain of command. You know what I mean? Like part of the same organization, but, but quite diametrically different in, in so many ways. And I think that, I mean, I think about interviews, viewers that I listen to, I think about when we've talked and I agree with so many times what you say about this idea of like the natural culture clash of the innovators, the startup people, who again want the advantage of like this giant tech company or whoever they're a part of, they want that backing, they want those resources, but uh, the opportunities for friction are so high. If you're not like intentionally managing friction, if you're not intentionally inviting people to want to be a part of you doing something that maybe they're not allowed to do, that maybe they don't understand, all these kind of things, it's like it feels like there's more like a, it's almost more of like a sales job or a romance a romance job of like. How do I attract these people to want to like what is the opposite of what they get to do? I don't know. How would you say it differently? I think it's a balance, right? I think uh, I think a, a, a lot of life is, is is about how do you preserve what you already have and sustain that and maintain it and make sure that it continues to be successful. But also, how do you not like atrophy from like repeatedly doing the same thing and also explore the future and and kind of just 
expand your mindset. So you can imagine a life that's all novelty, like it would drive you crazy. And you can imagine a, a life that's got no novelty and that would drive you crazy. And so the question is how, how do you balance that? And I often find that what we might want to describe as the novelty side of the business, which is the, the, the innovators, they don't have a, an empathy for the language and the ways of working of the, of, of, of the core business. In fact, because entrepreneurship has become so cool, there's like almost like a condescension, like, oh, those MBAs, stuff, stuffy, they don't know what they're doing. But I like to, uh, I like Steve Blank's, you know, the, the, the core business pays your salary and innovation pays your pension, right? It's a, it's a dual pronged <laughs> way of like thinking that both create value, but in a different way. And somehow they need to coexist in, 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 in an organization. And, and that's basically the goal of the work that we do. Well, um, I think your guys' organization is kind of exciting. Like, I, I definitely have envy. I kind of wish I worked with you guys. So tell people be about care. Strategizer yeah. and what you guys get to do. Just be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like a yeah, really cool duck on the top, legs flailing under me. No, what we do is we, we, we help organizations think about the future while they're working on, on, their, on their core business. And the recognition that we really have is that because innovation has become such an important and key component of our company's growth o o o over time, rather than just relegating it to the ghetto of your organization in some corner somewhere, it's better to build repeatable processes where you can really do it on, on, an, on, an, on an ongoing basis. So one conversation you can imagine just right is like a team wants to run an experiment to test a particular thing with customers, but compliance won't let them do it. And in that moment, you have two choices. You can negotiate for this one team to become successful and run their experiment, or you can negotiate with compliance and create a process such that not only just this team goes through, but the other teams that are going to come in the future don't have to run into the same roadblock. And so that's essentially the, the work that we do. And we call that building innovation ecosystem, which is Every time you run into a blocker of innovation, you've got, you can use the CEO to use his muscle to push the project through or any other person with power and influence or the power of, of persuasion. And if you do that successfully for one team, you're going to have to do it again for the next team and for the next team and for the next team. And so the question is, what can we build so that we don't have to keep doing that, but we can actually build pathways for, for innovators to travel through, through, through the company. Yeah. So as a team, you guys are pretty spread out. Alexander Oshweiler in Switzerland. Where, where else are people besides yourself down in Zimbabwe? Yeah, so I'm in Zimbabwe. We, we have a bunch of us in, in Switzerland. We have another bunch of us in Canada. We have some people in Poland. We have people in Australia. We, uh, there's a colleague in South Africa. We're like a fully remote company with over 50 people working there. So it's interesting. We spend most of our time looking at like this, the top part of our body. And then like twice a year. We get to see each other like, oh man, you were taller than I expected, especially if it's a new hire. I remember somebody <laughs> say, I was already remarking that I was shorter than they expected, which is not really a compliment. Yeah. We're in Canada, by the way. But so we're with some folks in Toronto. That's where, that's where the large group are. Yeah. I mean, you guys are on the wrong side. You got to get some people out West. Okay. Uh, I grew up in Alberta. All um, right. Right. So, um, what kind of advantages do you see for yourself? being a part of this business, but living in Zimbabwe? 
Um, so what's been interesting for the last, cause I've only been, I've only been back in Zimbabwe for 18 months, two years. Uh, before that I was in, I was in London for like 25. And so being back here, I'm starting to see how some of the work that I've been doing internationally really applies well to the African context. So now I have this advantage of being plugged into an international organization, exposure to international companies and international learnings. And I'm starting to have conversations. I'll be, I'll be going to Africa in a couple of weeks to see if I can work with some organizations there to bring some of that learning, have conversations with local entrepreneurs in the local entrepreneurship ecosystem and start to bring back some, to, to bring back some, 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 some of those learnings. So I think it's a rare privilege to be able to work internationally and live in your home country and then bring some of those lessons back to the environment and, and, and see how you can you know, make, a, make, make a contribution. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you guys are so famous for like what I consider like the best picture books of all time. Uh, you know, Business Model Canvas and these these great books that are so famous across the entrepreneur world and yeah. taught at Stanford and all over the world. You know, um, tell us about this new PDF that I I just downloaded and have been going through and, and where people can get. Yeah, so it's our brand new innovation playbook uh, from Innovation Theater to 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 grow engine. It's um, you can find it on www.strategizer.com forward slash grow. Um, so that way you can you can go download it. And, and again, we really wanted to focus on because as innovation has become like really buzzwordy and and really popular, we're seeing companies do a whole bunch of stuff now. We're seeing different programs come up. People are working with different products and technologies, et cetera, et cetera. And the question is, what value is any of that creating? And so we wanted to kind of start to put structure and like, and that's what we're known for in search So it's not just the picture books, it's how we can take these concepts and kind of make them interconnect and make them visual and, and, and put structure in thinking about some of these sort of amorphous human challenges that happen inside organization. So here we're trying to put structure in terms of how do you build a repeatable innovation engine that that can then you know drive continuous success within your company. Yeah, um, you know, I, again, I've been watching some of your videos and things. Uh, I thought one of the interesting ones was this idea of like, it's not an advantage to be the CEO's pet project. Can you talk about this? Yeah, so that one is an interesting one because it's it's based on one of uh, I call them Alexander Waster Alexander Osterwalderism. That's what I call it, right? This is like this, this phrase that comes up with. I don't even know how he does it, but he's constantly coming up with his kind of prescient points of view where he calls it condemned to succeed. If, if you put those words together, it's like, what do you mean like condemned to succeed? It's like, yeah, if you're, if you're working on an innovation project where you don't know who the customer is and you don't know whether you're going to be successful, but there's already an expectation that you're going to bring returns, that's what it, it can feel like a condemnation. And so that's what happens when you become the CEO's pet project, because when you become the CEO's pet project, it's very, it, it's the rare human being that's willing to tell the CEO that their baby is ugly, right? That's a very brave, that's a very brave employee. And what tends to happen as well when you're the CEO's pet project is you, um, you get a large amount of investment upfront. And then you, you might have the misfortune of being touted as a lighthouse project. Right. And now you are like visible budget spending. You basically have no room to fail. 
And what we know about innovation effectively is the best way to find good ideas is to have loads of ideas and then make multiple small bets in those ideas and then allow teams to test those ideas. And then you double down investment only on the ideas that are showing traction. But if you're the CEO of Pet Project, you've been picked already and singled out from day one. And so now you've got this problem where you're condemned to succeed. And the ultimate result of that is a zombie project. That's what we call them, zombie innovation projects. Innovation like projects that are showing zero traction, but don't die. And their budget gets renewed month to month to month to month or year to year to year. And the team just keeps on working because they don't want to stop and tell the CEO, this is not working. It, it takes a lot of bravery and energy to actually do that. You know, it's interesting, this idea, like I think about one of your guys' big fans, uh, Steve Blank from Stanford, you know, built eight startups. I think his last one sold for $8 billion, right? And he's been on the show a couple of times. And I, I think about like, what a fan of the business model canvas and what you guys do, he, he is, and I know you guys collaborate. Um, and it makes me think about this difference that he brings up of like, are you still on the scavenger hunt for repeatable business? Or are you, are you duplicating, are you executing, are you executing a duplicatable business that you've already confirmed? Exactly. Because exactly. Like, if you're not clear on that, you, <laughs> you're going to have a real tough and yeah, accomplishing exactly. what you want to accomplish when you don't know which one of these you have, right? Yeah. Are we in a bicycle or an airplane? <laughs> yeah, and if you try to do airplane things with a bicycle, you're going to have massive problems and you're going to have broken bones. And so it's really important that people understand this distinction. The moment to become a, the CEO of Pet Project is after searching, when we have a validated business model that we're ready to scale. Then it, it makes sense to become the CEO of Pet Project because in that moment, you do need the resources to scale. You do need the support. You do need the strategic fit and, and, and plugging into the, into, the, in, in, into the main organization. And what's fascinating about that, I'm just like following my own train of thought to stop me if you, if you think I'm, I'm deviating too much. Yesterday, I was having a conversation with the CEO of, a, of, a, of an established company and education business in South Africa. And he's young. He's just taken over the business as CEO from his parents. But the parents are still the sole shareholders and they sit on the board and I sit on. And so they've been having this kind of tension of a conversation around, he wants to go more digital and explore more, you know, innovative business models. But the, the board is like restricting that because they want to focus on growing and scaling the already existing business. And, the, and, we, and, and we blended on this insight together that actually there's a moment on which to have a conversation with a core business about an innovation. And it is not at the moment when the innovation is still an idea that's surging. Because if you're still an idea that's surging, if you want to have a conversation with a core business during that period, you're basically speaking French and they're speaking Latin. No, you're not speaking the same language. But once you've found a business model that works, you automatically speak Latin now. So you can now have a conversation with a core business because now we're talking the same thing, growing revenue, growing customers, ROI, ARR, whatever it is, all those metrics now apply because we have a business model that we're trying to scale. But if we try and apply that to the just an emerging nascent thing, the board would just go like, but why would we do that when we already know like if we print 500 more books, we're going to get definitive revenue. And so it's an interesting tension there that, that you always have to manage. Well, so you actually kind of pre-answered one of the questions I was going to ask. 
you know, I know you focus so much on the larger companies, but I'm thinking about this as a problem even in smaller or mid-sized companies where there's a founder who, you know, they, they did enough searching that they found something that worked and then they started duplicating it and the company, you know, 10 times the number of employees. And then that, that crazy visionary founder who is the one with all the ideas and, and likes searching, they like the scavenger hunt, like that's what they're wired for. You know, they've, they've put management in place and they've put, you know, integrators and, and people to like run that duplicatable business. And they're like, oh, you know, I had a good idea. And like, or there's, there's, the, oh, there's, there's these like six things I want to try next. And it scares the core business who got hired to duplicate the, the cash cow. And they're like, well, we, you know, we really need you. We really need you to stay focused on, you know, on the, on the, on the baby over here. You know, like, uh, do you have any thoughts of like in small business where it's like, you know, the potential of almost like becoming a victim of your own success of like, oh, we built this thing. You know, we scavenger hunt long enough. We found the one that actually works and that we keep having more customers that want to pay for it and we keep being able to raise the price and, and that's really growing. And you're like, yeah, but I want to go, I want to go run more experiments. Like, do you have any advice of like how to negotiate this, like negotiate a budget from your own company to go do experiments that you might be just lighting the money on fire? Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, so two thoughts come to my mind and kind of completely unrelated, but let's see if I can connect them somehow. So Steve Blank talks about this a lot, right? He talks about how there's a certain moment when the venture capital investors have to decide, are you the right CEO to take them to IPO or not? And if you're not, they'll get rid of you and replace you with a proper person who knows how to execute. Steve Blank even jokes that before you tell them you found a business model that works, they don't even know your name because they invest in so many companies. But the moment you tell them that you've now found something that works, now they're like, oh, yay. Hey, Jeff. Like they now know your name and they want to like really like look at you now and see if you're the one that's going to be ready to take the machine to scale. And so there's, a, so there's always a tension there. And I think that during the moment where a company is like in hyper growth mode, I think it's important for the CEO to focus on maximizing that hyper growth. I think. I think the more they get distracted, the less they can actually really grow and, 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 and scale that company. But it comes to a certain point where the, the thing matures. And I think at that point, you can, you need to, you need to start, or at least a little bit just before that point, you need to start thinking about like, what are the future things that, 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 that we can start working on. But the tension is simply this, a lot of the time leaders and innovators themselves try to place the experimentation in the same space as the core business. And what I mean by that is that not, not, not physical space. I'm talking about like governance space, investment decision-making space, uh, uh, teams, taking teams away from core business and, and, and all that. And in that competition for space, the core business always wins because it can show immediate results. And, and the board will always, you know, ask for, those immediate results. And so the role of the, of the, of, especially if you're a CEO, you have a lot of decisions that you can make is to create a separate lane and to ask for a small portion of funds that can get invested in that lane. And then to just build a, a bridge that bring, that takes the things that have succeeded in this one path back to the core business. Right. And I think just the ability to make that distinction really, 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 really matters because, because if you don't, 
you're getting judged using a lens that doesn't really apply to to the work that you're that you're trying to do. Do you, do you mind if I go on yeah. my do you mind if I go on my other tangent? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, okay. So I was listening to the Freakonomic podcast, the the latest episode this past week, and it's like the the title of the episode is like, what 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 what's wrong with being a one hit wonder? And so they explain like how like these people become one hit wonders and then nothing else happens afterwards. And then they got this like like social scientist guy who did like some really like AI data analysis on like the Billboard Hot 100, et cetera, et cetera. And he says that the reason why sometimes people struggle is because the one-hit wonder creates what he calls a path dependence. And so the audience now starts expecting you to make things that are similar to the, to the hit. And so it says artists that get the one hit early get really constrained because if they still want to be creative, their new creative endeavors are a little likely to be successful if they're too different from the, from the thing that they invented first. And so that's really the challenge of creativity and, and innovation. If you become successful, how do you create the space to explore new things? That's a challenge for an, an artist, a movie director, an actor. Uh, if you get typecast or, right, all of those things become, become, become challenges and they're just perennial challenges for any kind of creative work. And so. I don't know how that's connected, but it's, it's a thought that came to my mind when you asked the question. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, you look at J.K. Rowling when she stopped writing the Harry Potter series and she came out with her next book. She she published it with a man's name as the author. Yeah. For her pen name. Right. Right. Yeah. And um, or you, I don't know if you uh, so Matthew McConaughey, the actor, put out his uh, book a year and some ago, Green Lights, where he talks about essentially having been typecast as like the leading man in romantic comedies. Right. And he wanted, he wanted to do more work than that. Mm -hmm. So what he did is, and this is, I, I, I have to admire him for like the like inner fortitude for this. He stopped taking all roles that were that type. And right. he literally turned down movies for like three years straight, movie after oh. movie. And they're offering him millions of dollars per movie. And he's turning them down over and over and over until he felt like his presence in the public mind had had shrunk enough right that he was then allowed to do something different and you know has gone on to much more dramatic roles and things that he found more fulfilling yeah that's a that's a big price that's to pay big price right? to pay right yeah um and you know like so i'm going to i'm going to throw one more little complication into my question here okay um does your answer change at all if if you've just bootstrapped and you're not negotiating against a board or venture capitalist. It's just your co-founders. Your co-founders who, who possibly got brought on after the scavenger hunt. You know, like people who, people who got equity, they got brought on and they got equity to essentially manage a duplicatable business. And now you want to go back to being your crazy visionary self. Like, do you take your own personal earnings? And because you're bootstrapped, you can take cash out of the business. Do you take your own personal earnings? And literally go start another corporation. Do you negotiate between yourselves of like, hey, this much budget is going to go to this innovation portfolio I'm going to do? Uh, I mean, obviously, either of those could, option, could happen. But any kind of guidance between options like that or other options I'm not considering? Yeah, that, those, those are the main options. You either leave those company you bootstrapped and take your earnings and, 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 and go do something else. And we've seen that happen. But people just get tired of working on the same thing and then they just leave and especially if they get a big investor coming in towards the end, 
they just take like whatever they've gained after they earn out whatever they were paying out and, and then they just go do something else. And, and, then, and then in other situations, I think the guy that Google did this, right? They're like, oh, we're bringing in adult supervision. And then they bring in a, a, a proper CEO, if, if, if you want, which frees up the, the founders to still be creative and explore much more interesting projects. And so again, and then of course they can negotiate whatever portion of time and budget that they're allowed to, 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 to do that. The question is, so for example, like in, 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 you know, Intuit, the, 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 the tech accounting software company, they're quite innovative, right? They come up with really great, you know, you know, innovative pro products a lot of the time. And, and what's fascinating about it is a lot of that is like exactly what the social scientists were talking about in terms of path dependence. It's not like they went, oh, TurboTax is really successful. Now we're going to go into car washes or, or we're going to start making toasters, right? They innovate in and around what they can use to, to leverage the company to, to this kind of scale. And so the question is, again, if you're the CEO or, or the founder, like how crazy far away do you want to go? Or are you really innovating around helping the company grow its portfolio in terms of like, you know, efficiency innovations and maybe a little bit of sustaining innovation. If you're going to do something really crazy, maybe it's like one or two things, if not like a, a total of preoccupation. So that, that's a balance that, that, that you have to think of. But the conversation remains the same, which is how do you create a niche space for you to be able to, to do that work while also creating a process for the thing you created to keep growing and scaling and creating value for those that have invested time and energy to helping you do that. Yeah. What's another one of your principles? You know, I, I get to talk to a lot of CEOs and entrepreneurs, and then we have offline conversations or friendships and stuff. And, and there's so often this tension between, man, we've got the goose that lays the golden egg. I don't want, I don't want to kill the business that's paying everybody salaries. And yet I do want to invent the new version of ourselves and that natural tension. What's another one of your principles for a leader who's trying to navigate that tension? I don't know. I mean, so there's, there's a word I use a lot, which is, I think that leadership is stewardship and stewardship is making sure the lights are on today, which is critical, but also making sure that the lights continue to be on in the future. So that's, so, so, so that's the principle. And then you have this tension between, we know what works already. And we've got these ideas of what we think might work in the future, but we don't know if it works because we haven't really done it yet. And so good stewardship in that situation is to keep the core business going. And then for the things that you're thinking about, explore them as experiments. So that's where the Pirates of the Navy analogy comes to play again. And when I was in, when I was in Tel Aviv working with a colleague, he said, you know what? I don't want to be a pirate. I want to be an explorer. Cause if you're an explorer, there's a commission you've been sent to do that stuff. So, and this is a really bad analogy. Like as an African, I'm probably going to get my African card revoked, but with, when the British were looking to colonize the world, when the British were looking to colonize the world, they didn't all like pack up and everyone left the country. Like, yeah. They didn't know where they were going, but we all left and we all, we all went. They kind of sent a search party first and then they would send administrators and then the big private companies. It was, it was like a systematic 
exploration and that infrastructure would get built and then a bridge between the colony and the mothership would get built. And But at the beginning, it was kind of like at a distance before they started in, in, investing in administrating. And so that's an extension of the pirate and the Navy metaphor, not to celebrate those things as like great things that happened in history, but that's an extension of the pirate and the Navy metaphor, which is if you are going to be the steward, then you have to keep the core thing going. And then what you're doing in the future are experiments. And so you, you make only the minimum investment needed to learn whether the thing is going to work first before you start doubling down and, 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 and making large investments. And I think a big mistake leaders make is because they, they think they get paid to make decisions and choose winners themselves. And then there's the vanity that this one thing you created worked. So now you think you have the magic touch to make the next thing work. And so you start skipping over the steps. And that creates this like, I, I love that you're bringing this up because right. I, you know, we've had like over 800 episodes now of the show. Right. And, you know, it's, it's pretty tough to get on the show these days. If you haven't raised a hundred million or you're not making a hundred million a year as an entrepreneur, like we're dealing with higher level entrepreneurs in general. Right. Um, or you have to be like an epic author or a movie star or a pro athlete or, you know, Delta force commando or something. Right. We're really looking for those high achievers. And so I, I will say, though, there's a big difference between um, people who built good companies, people who built great companies. And I think I've had maybe, let's call it 25 folks on who have grown from zero over a billion, right? Like the Steve Blanks, okay? And one thing I see repeatedly in those folks who are just at like, like Michael Jordan level of entrepreneurship, at least in my eyes, um, is such like words that you'll hear over and over listening humility customer obsession what you don't hear is i knew mm -hmm. um, i told them uh like just just their own word choice is different right and like it's funny i have these guys on and they like they i've maybe i've read their books like a number of times and I'm like so excited to have them on because I'm, like, I think I'm going to get like the one nugget they've never said on all of the interviews I've ever watched on YouTube of them. And it never happens. Okay? Right. Hey. But what always happens is that I find out they live their own, they eat their own cooking more than I realized. And they live their own principle deeper than I ever thought. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just use Steve Blank for one second since we've been talking about him. Right. Um, you know, he, he preaches the business model canvas from you guys at Strategizer. He preaches customer discovery and customer validation. And I, I can't tell you how many, you know, interviews of his I've watched about it and reading, reading his books and whatever. But having him on the show and we're talking about like, you know, this idea of get out of the building and actually talk to a customer, like quit pretending that you, that you read minds and go ask. And don't lead the witness, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> like, you want to actually find out what they think. Yeah. This is not trying to influence them to tell you you were right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And he's like, in my class, you have to ask. You have to get in front of 10 potential customers a week, 10 weeks in a row. And you have to do this literally 100 times before you're even telling them what the product is. Like, this is just finding out what's going on in their lives. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, 
Well, that's interesting. Like I have a lot of entrepreneur friends and they claim that they've gone out and done their testing and everybody loves it. And I got to tell you, like I think about, you know, I had a couple of really good business wins and maybe a dozen, you know, failures, learning experiences, whatever you want to call them. And I think like in general, like, oh, have I ever done like a hundred before we start selling? Like an actual hundred. Right. I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't think I have. And I don't think even my friends who built like hundred million dollar companies. I don't think they asked a hundred. Yeah. You know, like, man, Steve really believes in this. And then the conversation goes on and we're talking about marketing firms. And he's like, hey, listen, I'm not against hiring an outside marketing firm. I just have such a hard time finding a marketing firm that knows more about my customer than I do. So I can't really trust their judgment. And I was like, oh yeah, because you do the, you know, because you do the hundred interviews. They're like, well, no, no, that's what I make my students do. When it was my own company, I would do between 200 to 300. Here's like, what? You never, you like, yeah. you find out like he really believes it yes. to a level yes. that, that no, I don't hear from anybody else. No wonder he was able to sell the last company for 8 billion, yeah. right? And so when you bring that up, I just think, man, that just rings so true with these guys who build billion or, you know, the co-founder from DigitalOcean got that to 15 billion. Uh, I had the founder of Lululemon. The day I interviewed him, it was worth 47 billion. Right? right, exactly. And and he talked about like, I thought I knew this is what it was. And, you know, when he had this snowboard company, West Beach, I know I'm talking too much here. No, no, no. But he no. had this great this snowboard great. clothing company called West Beach. Yeah. And he hired a bunch of young kids like Devin Walsh and Kevin Jones, who ended up being like world-class snowboarders. But at the time, they were like 17-year-old kids, right? Yeah. And he's like, I brought them in and showed them what I, what I thought was a good idea. And they're like... They're like, no, no, it's got to be baggier. This is like in the 90s, right? And so, so he follows their advice, and it goes really well, and West Beach becomes super cool. People in Japan can't get enough of it, right? And he's like, so then I came back with next year, so I was like, okay, I know what it is. And I didn't ask their advice, and I, I just did it myself because, you know, I learned from the baggy thing. And I came back to them and said, hey, guys, this is awesome, right? And he's like, they all said, yeah, yeah, it is. But their eyes told me it wasn't. And he's like, I knew how it screwed up. And right. it was really hard for us to get rid of that inventory. And I learned my lesson. And I quit thinking I knew it was better, what was best. And it's interesting that like, after those mistakes, he sells West Beach and starts $47 billion Lululemon. So I want you to repeat what you said earlier about like, you had a win, quit thinking that you know it all, skipping the process of the feedback. Can, can you repeat that again? Because that was my really long endorsement of what you just said. <laughs> Yeah, it's fantastic. And I'll repeat it and add a piece of research to it. So what you don't want to do is to think that because you've had a, a, a previous success, you then develop this facet, you know, this vanity, and you start skipping over process, right? And there's a really great piece of research that was published in the UK. I think the professor was from the University of Surrey, and now I forget his name. And the title of the paper was, Do Entrepreneurs Really Learn or Do They Just Tell Us They Do? Which really, speaks to what you're, which really speaks to what you're talking about. And what they did in that study was they wanted to know whether or not success on your first startup predicts success on your next startup. And so they looked at like thousands of like data points from Barclays Bank companies. There's the data that have been sort of startups that open bank accounts and then it closed them because they closed, whatever. And they did a correlation between founders who had started a company before and founders who had started a company before and to measure the level of success. So a new founder versus a founder who had started a successful company before. And what they found was the correlation between having founded a company 
and not is zero. Like previous success has zero predictive value or predicting future success. And they had a, they had trouble publishing this paper because the mythology out in the world is if you've had a successful startup before, even investors will give you money because they just assume that you can take whatever you learned in your previous startup and apply it to your next startup. And when I watched him give the talk, he explained that the reason why entrepreneurs fail sometimes on their second startup is not because they didn't learn from their first startup. It's actually because they learned from their first startup and they've taken those lessons from their first startup and now they're applying them in a context where it's not appropriate. No two startup situations are the same, right? And so you always have to enter the, the, the next startup thinking completely new. And so what, you, so what you master is not what you did in your previous startup. What you master is a, at, a, at a higher level, almost like what you call the meta level, which is a methodology, systems, and process, which is what Steve Blank talks about. This is one campus where he talks about experimenting, where he talks about talking to customers, where he talks about learning all the time. And then I'll add one last wrinkle to that whole thing. Rob Fitzpatrick, who wrote the book, The Mom Test, which is about having conversation with, with, with customers, right? He's, he's booked to come on the show in a few weeks. Right. So Rob is fantastic. He's like one of the coolest people in the world. Good friend. When I used to watch him coach teams in startup incubators, he used to warn them against taking advice from mentors who have succeeded with their previous startup. And he used to say, it's because the terrain of your startup is different. And he had a visual. He said, the terrain of your startup is different from the terrain that that founder had to navigate for their own startup. So if this startup founder succeeded by hopping twice and he had a visual where he showed like this mountain terrain, he said, jump twice, then do one big jump and you're successful. If they give you that advice and you hop twice and then do a big jump, you might crater into a hole because your terrain is actually different. And so he, he gave that as a warning just around like taking execution advice from, from mentors. The best advice that you can get from mentors is a methodology process advice that allows you to discover the value or how to create value with your own startup rather than executing exactly what they did. And so that's, that's where that vanity becomes a problem if you don't really learn to sort of contain that and, and follow a process. Okay. I love this so much. I want to double down on this. Um, can, I, can I tell you one of my uh, hacks for interviews and client meetings and sales in general? Okay, go ahead. So I am a hardcore interrupter. Like I've never heard a story that some other idea doesn't come to mind and I want right. to interrupt people immediately right. and tell them my story, which is no way to make a friendship, right? So I cross my fingers. So right now I've got two fingers crossed and sometimes I have like five fingers crossed. <laughs> and, uh, and that is, it, it's just like this physical thing that helps me calm down and truly right. listen to people. Right. Right. And without the fear that I won't be able to remember that thing I was going to say later. So for what it's worth, there's my little hack of the day. Oh, that's pretty uh, cool. I'm going to, I'm going to start using that because I'm a hardcore interrupter as well. <laughs> um, I think what you've just said is so important, but I want to ask you about this tension. When you think about the advantages of learning lessons, so I did competitive judo for my teenage years. Oh, cool. Okay? And, um, and 
you know, I wasn't that great. I mean, I got good enough to try out for nationals. So, I, you know, I was, I was, you know, I, I paid my dues, right? And it's like, there's so many principles that were important about. So everybody, you know, where like wrestling is a little more about like muscle and like picking somebody up and these kind of things. Judo is a, a little more about, um, it's more finesse of like, they want to like a small girl to be able to throw a big man. So it's much more about, can you off balance somebody? So three steps to judo, off balance them, move in and execute. And it's like, if you've off balanced them enough, if your timing is right, you don't have to be very strong because their own gravity is working against them or their mm. or momentum, their own momentum is working against them. So I, like you constantly, like if I want to throw you over my shoulder this way, what I do is I give you a push forward so that naturally you lean in to not fall backwards. So I, I give you a push forward and I immediately yank you towards me so that your whole body that's reacting is pushing yourself forward to not fall backwards. And then you've done all sorts of work for me going forward mm -hmm. and I just move in and execute. Right. So there's, there's principles like that that are so important that you, you learn by repetition, you learn by doing. But when I would fight, so I was this tall, skinny guy in my weight class. And when I would fight short, stronger guys, the principles had to be applied different because of the dynamics. Or when I would, you know, when I would fight my sensei, you know, he was like this big Japanese guy that was like, I don't know, I was probably 110 pounds and he was probably 280. Do you know what I mean? Or maybe I was 120 pounds, right? Wow. He was a good 270 plus, right? And like <laughs> the, the principles have to be applied so differently, but the principles are still true. <laughs> and so I want to talk about this, this tension of the like, I do f feel free to disagree with me, okay? I feel like there are so many lessons learned by trying to be an entrepreneur, by trying to win the scavenger hunt and find a, a duplicatable business model, yeah. right? Um, Absolutely. And yet, there's such an opportunity for deception to think that the element of the principle that was important applies universally or applies in situations it doesn't. So my question for you is this idea of like, Confidence and humility balance beam, okay? Of like having enough confidence to say, I did learn something by winning at that business or by failing at that business and by trying to sell. Like I did learn things from that with the humility to figure out what aspects of that apply versus don't apply to this new terrain I'm on and like how to walk that balance beam in the middle. Yeah, so two answers to your question. So the first one, is I think that a lot of entrepreneurs underestimate the value of luck in how successful to become. Because in the capitalist and Rand narrative, you know, Atlas from the narrative, the entrepreneur is the owner of the, the, the story of, of, of their success. And so we, we kind of tell that story that, that way. So that's one thing. So, but, 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 but let's just assume that there were actions that you did that you can really see a causal effect on like the decisions you made and the outcomes that ended up and, 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 and ended up happening. Here's one thing I learned working with Alex and Eve at Strategizer. The thing that Alex and Eve do is they want to move beyond the instant to identify the, 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 the irreducible principle. 
And so the thing to learn is not the instant, but the principle. And if there's a way of like, if there's a paper about this. And so when they were designing the business model canvas, it needed to work every instant that it's being used in a business context. And so in order for that to happen, you have to look at all the instances and then extract from the instances, the higher principle, and then build a tool that's an expression of those higher principles. And so the humility of the entrepreneur is to look at the instant and not think the instant is the, the principle. Because the moment you start thinking the instant is the principle, you're going to take the practice that you use to deal with the instant and then apply it. And so, so now you're applying your judo motion to the 230 pound guy, the same way that you're applying it to the short, lower weight person. And, and that's the struggle. And, 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 so, and so the search for, I guess you might want to call them first principles. That's another the phrase I've heard used quite a lot. So the search for first principles and, and the struggle to try and find what that first principle is, is what, is what forces the humility on you. Because when you see an instance that you recognize a similar previous instance, you doubt that immediately because you're like, can I, is this the same as that? Can I use the same thing I did there here? And then over time you start thinking, well, under what circumstances does such and such apply? And under what circumstances does such and such apply? And, and that wisdom comes to folks like Steve Blank over like eight startups. And then they can start to share that with the world. And so the question is, what do you care about? I guess as a, as a, as a human being, like, do you care? I've also learned something else. So Adam Smith, Adam Smith is known for the book, Wealth of Nations, but he also wrote another book called Theory of Moral Sentiment before he wrote Wealth of Nations. And, and in the, and in the Theory of Moral Sentiment, he talks about how you don't want to just be praised. You want to be praiseworthy. So you don't just, you don't just crave to be well loved. You want to be lovely. I think that's the word he uses because back in the day of the, the, the object for which love is an appropriate re reaction. And what we fear is not just blame, but to be blameworthy, which is worse. Right. And so in the instance, as an entrepreneur, the question, what do you really care about? Do you really care about figuring out what works in entrepreneurship in various circumstances and situations, or do you just think, yeah, I made it. I'm cool. And now I'm just going to go around validating how cool I am in, 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 in the world. And if that's your goal, then I'm sure you can be lucky enough for that to work for you. But for the rest of us, I think caring about the reality of things and really what works is really what's going to help us, you know, create a more meaningful life, I think. Well, and I think a bigger contribution to society and your own children and your own community and, um, and in so many other ways. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I'm thinking about this idea of separating out instances from principles, principles from repeatable principles. And I think about like my interpretation of stoic philosophy, right? Uh, I, I, use the, I use the analogy of a surfer. I've like, basically like no amount of complaining or wishing uh, for the waves to be different does any good. Mm -hmm. But 
but spending a lot of time learning how to spot a wave forming, you know, spending time building bigger shoulder muscles so you can get yourself in the right place and you can accelerate fast enough, you know, building balance. So once you're up, you can stay up, you know, like, like there's so many things I can't control and it's the size of the wave, how fast the wave is moving, where, where the wave is picking up. Right. But there are so many things I can control, you know, surfing that wave that I can't control. Right. Yeah. And to me, there's like a certain correlation here and feel free to disagree with me, but it's like this, this situation where my previous success happened is like the terrain that Rob Fitzpatrick, it's almost like the wave is the terrain for yeah. Rob Fitzpatrick. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so there's principles of surfing. There's principles of scavenger hunting, you know, mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. that apply regardless what wave I'm surfing, regardless of what terrain I'm trekking over. And the, the difference is like, like figuring out how to bifurcate the, like to separate, was I lucky because I had a good wave or was I lucky because I had a good wave or, or how much of me catching this wave was that I was lucky enough and how much was due to my surfing skill and my ability to spot waves and my ability to paddle hard enough and being able to separate how much of this was the wave and how much of this was me because taking credit for either wrongly is going to be unhelpful in me catching the next wave um do you see it i mean yeah, that's I'm exactly kind of it. this stuff up as i go that's, 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 that's exactly it but here's an, another interesting challenging something about human beings like the instance is very seductive and that's because it's concrete and principles tend to be abstract and so to, to, to constantly refer back to an abstract concept when you're faced with a concrete thing is really really hard so we end up sucked in by the instant. And that's what leads us to make mistakes. And so it's really important. And that's you know, if we want to relate it right back to the playbook, innovation theater, growth engine. It's like we're trying to help companies build a systematic, repeatable process so that they're not seduced by the instant. Oh man, this AI app looks really good. Or what Eric Reed says, which is imagine if the world was run by people who are really good at PowerPoint, right? Or who are really good at whiteboards. So, they, so their arguments are really persuasive. If we step away from the seductiveness of the instance or our emotional reaction to a piece of technology and start asking the question, who's the customer? What value are we creating? Why would they ever pay for this? What problem are we solving? Like regardless of how beautiful the thing is, those higher level principles will allow us to constantly navigate various instances. And every now and again, the technology will be both beautiful and valuable. And sometimes the technology will be ugly, but valuable. Case in point, Craigslist. And then in other situations, you know, the technology will be beautiful and completely pointless, like the, the, the expected anticipated success of the Segway and what actually happens. And so all of these things are, are really important that we keep referring back to first principles it really builds around ourselves an armor of craft that allows us to keep referring to that as, a, as we en encounter all these various instances. Okay. Can you, how would you define an armor of craft? Ooh, that's a, I, 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 hadn't, I hadn't thought about that before. Um, it's interesting because well, one of my favorite books is Beepo, Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport. I don't know if you know. Right. Yeah, I, I've read it once. I, I really, I've read Deep Work 
many times, but right. I've only read that one once. Yeah, so you know, it, people could, can't ignore you. And then I, and then the phrase "Amber of Craft," I actually stole it from um, this Netflix documentary called "Is it it's about designers?" Or what is that called again? Do you know the Netflix documentary where they interview various designers? Helvetica or Objectified or no no it's something by design I can't remember but yeah but like they talk to like the guys who design Nike shoes the guys who design cars and they just look at oh, sounds look, great though. yeah look at the practice and, and one of them was a guy who does cartoons for the New Yorker and he says like every time he gets a request to do he, he like panics they say the only thing that calmed him down from panicking at the instant of alternative is to surround himself with an armor of craft which is a range of best practices repeatable things that he's learned that he can keep reaching into whenever he and and and, and encounters the challenge. So he's the one that said, "What saved me from the panic is I just have to surround myself with an with an armor of craft." So even when he doesn't have a New Yorker thing or a request to do work, he works up every day and he and he does the practice so that he can keep kind of having that muscle to go back to the first to the to the first. To the I, first. I yeah, I identify with that so much. I so I made enough money in my 20s to retire and lost it all because I was speculating and then didn't learn my lesson and I made it back again for a second time in my 20s and managed to lose it all again and that's why this third time I'm going to buy commercial real estate with low debt okay but or, uh, or, it, was, or, it was terrible or... I lost friends money I lost family's money I I mean it was it was you know I had like a six month depression each time afterwards and um it's when I really had to take a look at what are the principles I'm basing my decisions on. Mm. And I basically like gave up my religion and speculation and fortune telling. And I became like a hardcore devotee of Warren Buffett. And I read right. 6,000 pages of his books and some, I mean, 6,000 different pages, some of those many times. And I flew out to Omaha and went to his shareholder meeting and I took classes on him. I've actually written and taught classes about his methodology now. And most of my friends are speculators. They're starting businesses and like, I, that's not true. I'm willing to speculate with my time mm. or my money, but I've become unwilling to speculate with anyone else's money. And I do compound interest investing if I'm letting someone else in, be involved. Mm -hmm. And um, it's funny, like, I get such a panic about people risking large amounts of money because I, I, like I've got PTS from, from that, you know, I'm like, Having to say, I'm sorry, I lost your money is like one of the worst experiences I've ever had, right? And um, my like kind of sheer obsession with Warren Buffett, his partner, Charlie Munger, his mentors, Ben Graham and Phil Fisher, some of his top devote, his followers, you know, Howard Marks at $700 billion uh, Brookfield or, or uh, sorry, sorry, Bruce Flatt at Brookfield, Howard Marks at Oak Tree. And, and um, you know, a decade you know, essentially a decade later now, yeah, because it's this this would be like year eleven, you know, really going full steam into this. Mm -hmm. um, I can kind of have any one of my buddies, one, you know, any guest off the podcast say, "Hey, Jess, what do you think about this investment?" And I can sift it through the Warren Buffett family tree. And even though I don't have to claim to know the future, I can, I can, I have this like armor of craft of like. Well, I don't know, but I'll tell you what I think Charlie Munger would say, or I don't know, but I can tell you what I think Howard Marks would say, or Warren Buffett would say, or Ben Graham would say. And it's not like that is an infallible thing, but it's kind of like 
I love uh, competing against luck by Clayton Christensen, mm. where he talks about the value of theory right. and the anxiety of not having to predict the future when you have the proper principles incorporated in a theory that, to me, relates to your theory, your your armor of craft of like. For me, it's an anxiety reducer. Yeah, I'm going like, oh, I can't control the future. I don't know the future, but like you said, the tool belt, this armor of craft of like, but I do have these principles that I have faith apply more times than they don't. And so I can stack the probabilities in my favor, even though I can't, can't, can't control the future. Um, is there anything in there that, that, that I, you identify with that, or see it, differently? That, that's absolutely it. And, and the thing I love about Steve Blank's principles and Alex Othold's principles is there even at, an, at a more interesting level there, it's an armory for learning before you jump in deep. So, so it's a craft around, before I even make a huge bet, how do I find out if the bet is worth making? And so they, they, they provide me with even more comfort because now I know I can figure out a business opportunity, whether a business opportunity is valuable or not, without having to jump all in. And I'm, and I'm always in this conversation with, with startup founders, entrepreneurs, like, well, how do I learn if people want to buy, if I don't invest the heart, the $1 million to get it shipped from China to et cetera, et cetera. And the armor of craft, which has been created by Rob Fitzpatrick and David Bland, his book, testing business ideas is to create those small experiments that you can actually run that are cheap, but give you good data for you to start making informed decisions. So you don't have to order the thing from China to buy it if people are going to buy it. Or you can save yourself the grief. So, yeah. Yeah, that's so great. What was the second book you mentioned after it's, Rob Fitzpatrick's? Uh, David Bland's Testing Business Ideas. It's, a, it's, a, it's in the Strategizer series. It's a David Bland and, and Alec Russell. And in there... I, don't, they, I, I thought I'd read them all. I don't think I've read that one. Yeah, no, it's a... I got to get that. Yeah, you got to get that. In there, they describe 44 different experiments you can run to test business ideas. So that's an armor of craft. Like you can go, if, if I want to learn whether people would download, do I need to build a whole website? No, I can create a landing page. If I, if I want to learn whether people will buy, do I need to, I can do a pop-up store rather than find a two-year lease. If I need Very, very importantly, is there an audiobook of that? I think so. I don't know. I'd have to, I'd have to Google that. I'd have to check it on Amazon in case it's there, yeah. Otherwise, I'm going to have to get the Kindle and do like robot voice and get the phone to read it to me. No, it's a picture book, as you say. Our, our books are. So I think it might still work if you get the physical copy. But I'll tell you what, I'll get the physical copy and the Kindle. And so that I, and then I'll do robot voice and have the phone read me the Kindle while I look at the pictures. Right. That's cool. I think um, that's the best. Yeah. And every and, okay. then, and then we get paid twice. So that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know what, though? I think that good books have got to be like i'm such a nerd for the 80 20 principle you know probably the most fanboy of it that any guest is the self-made billionaire richard kosh who wrote the 80 20 principle um you know i'd read that book at least 20 times by the time he came on the show mm -hmm. and uh when you think about low input giant output i mean good books have got to be one of the highest value densities there are like you think about somebody spends years of their life and i can get it for $26 or $13 or something, I can get that compressed. Yeah. And like, obviously I don't get the same value they got, but I mean, from a, from a dollar to value ratio, I mean, it's just so out of control in my favor. Like books could be 10 times or 20 times as much 
and would be so drastically still in my favor. Yeah. You know? No, absolutely. That, that's a Think about what we pay for consulting or to go to conferences and trainings. I mean, books. Anyways, I'm so happy to buy, you know, the Kindle, the physical, and the audiobook. Well, thank you. We appreciate that strategy. Listen, um, I know we're winding up for time here. Thank We've you. We've covered very a lot much. of different things. Uh, what do you want to end with today? I don't know. People always ask me that question, like, what are your parting words? And I never have any good ones. <laughs> I'm always stuck for that. So, okay. Uh, that's, I, that's fine, because I yeah. got more questions. I'll give, you, I'll give you a final question. Okay. When you think about um, innovators, entrepreneurs, people in the scavenger business, mm -hmm. okay? mm -hmm. um, and we are trying to separate out how much of that, how much of that previous surfing wave was luck? How much of that was me? What, you know, what is the principle I can... So I have this situation and I'm not... I can't guarantee what parts were luck, what parts were, were me, what parts were the terrain, what parts were the principle. Yeah. Any guidance for us as we're trying to be more humble in learning from our experience to only pull out the principle and not, and not misidentify our, the value out of our previous experience? That's a really interesting one. Yeah, it's, it's hard to give a, a thing to answer to a question you haven't thought about that deeply. Like, how do you separate out, how do you separate out the luck from how well you've done yourself? Or just one little tip towards us doing it. Just assume that you don't know what you're doing. And yes. Like, just like navigate the world worried that you could be wrong. As, as just the way of life, which is really terrible because that's what I do. And it's very anxiety inducing. I like people that are like, people that are self-contented are sometimes nice to meet, but I'm permanently worried, constantly worrying that, you know, things could go wrong at any minute and I, and I, and I could be wrong. And it's, it's very anxiety inducing. So there's a temptation to once you become successful, rest on your laurels. But I think a healthy dose of self-skepticism is great. Even like, you know, people who have like imposter syndrome, I think it's healthy. I think having a, just the right amount of imposter syndrome is healthy. It keeps you on your toes. And which leads me to a story that I, I heard a, a friend of Alex Osterwald just tell us at a, at a at an, at, at, at an off-site, he's a presenter. He, he does like hosting and TV shows and radio and things like that. He said once he was invited to host a comedy show. And so everything is like pre-produced and everything, right? Because it's like television. And, but he was supposed to kick off and like warm up the audience. So he says like the first day he does it, he doesn't do that well. And then the second day he gets coached by the producers on the principles of getting the audience to, to laugh and everything. So he says like he applies the principles and it works. And then he says, like, on the third day, he was like, the producers were trying to talk to him again. He was like, no, no, no don't talk to me. Like, I got this. Because right. from just the previous success, he, he got really cocky. And he says, like, I walked on stage. And the first thing I said was, and, and then, like, he said, like, I bombed. Like, no one was laughing. It was just a struggle to go through that. Because I, I, I went in there cocky that my previous success would actually replicate. And I dropped the principles because I thought it was so cool. 
They said on the fourth day, I went back to them. I was like, just tell me like all the things I need to do so that I can just keep like learning. And so that's effectively in that story, the journey of like, when you, when something good, great happens for you, don't just assume that you're the greatest and that next week it's going to happen for you. There are certain principles that you still have to kind of keep reminding yourself. And just that little dose of humility, impulsive syndrome, fear, I, I, I think is really helpful for, 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 for entrepreneurs particularly, because we take so many risks. I love it. Well, thanks again for making time this morning. Thank you, Jess. Really appreciate the conversation. Uh, okay, we'll write another book so we can have you back. Yeah, thank you. I will do that in healthy in three years, I guess. That's how long it takes. <laughs> okay, bye, everyone.